0: is enough for today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see everybody. Uh, My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors. If if you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, It's a bit of a full week in the life of our church, should you so desire it to be, Uh, this Wednesday. I don't know if we have a slide for this. Do we have a slide for the prayer night? I don't know. It's okay if we don't. We didn't last service, I just thought about it now, no? Okay, that's fine. Um, As we've been kind of looking around the the pastors at the life of our church, there's lots of signs of health, lots of signs of growth, uh, lots of things that we're encouraged about. One of the things we're really not encouraged about is the life of prayer we have as a church. both individually, but also us corporately. You know, for a long time, the way you learned how to pray was you'd go to church and we'd pray the same prayers together. And we, that's some of what we do on Sundays. But uh, this idea of not just the competence aspect of prayer so, how do we pray, but also the confidence aspect. Of prayer, that we can come before the throne of grace boldly um, with confidence that God will care for us. So this Wednesday night, uh, we're going to gather together and pray. There'll be some prompts on the screen, like here's, we're going to pray for all of the elections. We're going to pray for the church in this place, you know, kind of open-ended stuff like that. And then we'll sing and we'll pray. There'll be time for healing prayer. Uh, So we'll have people with oil accordance with James 5, and you can come forward. And if there's a sickness you have, an illness, something you won't release from, we'll, we'll pray for that. So I encourage you guys to come out if you can make it. We're hoping to make this a, a regular rhythm in the life of our church. And then uh, if you're curious about membership, uh, you've heard us probably mention members in the church and then non-members. The, the members, that's kind of like the family. These are the people who have committed and said, this is, I'm here. These are my people. And there's a, a class experience that we invite folks to. We're, we're trying something a little different this time. And so we're having more of kind of like a, an hors d'oeuvre dessert party with the staff and the elders on Friday night. Now, if you're interested, the details about that are in the back of your bulletin. But if you want to be a member, that's what you need to do. You need to come to that. If you have questions and you're not sure who to ask, like, why is the music loud on Sundays? Um, everybody ever asked that? It's not the sound guy's fault. Um, so don't go talking to him. Like, that's a biblical and a pastoral decision that gets made that we have loud music. Why is that? Can it be too loud? Yes, it can be too loud. So I'm not dogging you if you're you know, like, yes, we get too loud sometimes. But why do we do that? Uh, Why do we pray the way we do in service? Whatever. That's a great space for you to come and check that out. So the info, how to sign up, how to register is on the bulletin. And we hope that you can come check that out. Uh, We are rolling in uh, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount here. Once we finish with Matthew 7, we're going to look at the book of Esther for a few weeks. And if you don't know about Esther, it's one of the wildest craziest, most unusual books of the Bible. God's not mentioned in it, and that should make anyone who reads the Bible be like, isn't the Bible about God? Why is it not talk about God? Um, it's kind of like the Bible's Game of Thrones, if you're into that thing. I mean, there's lying, there's weird, like, it's just graphic, violent, money, sex, power. It's a crazy story. So we're going to look at that for a few weeks, and then we're going to look at the book of Daniel, and then be back in the book of Matthew in the fall. Uh, so we're, we're coming to the close here on the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been saying it for several weeks, but the kind of the mission statement or the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to reveal in order to heal. So Jesus will use really intense language. You see this throughout his ministry. It's just real clear here in Matthew 5 through 7. He'll say provocative, intense things to try to wake us up to some new reality. He'll disrupt us in order to instruct us. He'll reveal things about our heart so that he can invite us to experience healing for our heart. And in essence, he's inviting us to a life of greater dependence on God. Uh, That's the goal of the Beatitudes. That is kind of the the core purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, to teach us what does a a fully human life, lived in dependence on God, what does that look like? And there'll be times where it should leave us a little bit helpless, because when when you're feeling helpless, that tends to be the times when you start saying things like help. It's... It's hard to feel needy and dependent without having an awareness of a bit of your helplessness. And Jesus is covering the, kind of the full gamut of what it means to be a human. The, there's this core issue he keeps talking about, which is the heart. That's kind of the, the bed, the core of who a human is. And earlier in chapter 5, he starts talking about the emotional aspects of our heart. So he's trying to help us get down and to see that the big problem in our life is our heart. So in in chapter 5, he says, listen, you don't murder, good for you. Way to go. Congratulations, you don't murder. You've heard it said you shouldn't murder. And I'm telling you, you shouldn't even have unresolved anger in your heart. So the, the action of murder isn't just the problem, but the emotion of anger underneath it is the problem. It's, it's not just adultery you need to avoid. It's that emotional hungering for someone else. So Jesus takes us below the surface in Matthew 5 into kind of the emotional terrain of our hearts and our souls. From there, he exposes some of the spiritual hypocrisy of our hearts. This is something that I think we all are pretty well acquainted with in this part of the country. Those are the people who play Christian for the sake of getting kind of societal, cultural approval. So we do these christian things, not because we want to build the kingdom of God or have a real heart or knowledge experience of god but because you know grandma was a christian and my uncle's a pastor and everyone here's a christian we want to look good and and jesus is talking about you know the ways that you pray just to, to make the crowds think you look good or the things you do with your money just to make the crowds think you look good he's he's exposing some of the spiritual hypocrisy of our hearts now here in chapter six he's moving on to the material shallowness of our hearts, how our hearts kind of run and cling to stuff. And that's what we're going to be talking about. But I want you to see that Jesus is appealing to every aspect of our humanity, how the heart shapes everything about who we are and and what we do, our emotions, our spirituality, our bodies, and now even our material stuff. Jesus isn't just after this one kind of I don't know, a simple confession of faith. He's, he's after our whole beings being transformed and conformed into the likeness of Christ. And it, it centers around the invitation today, this repeated command three different times. If you, if you go back, we didn't put it all in the bulletin, but today's text that we're talking about really starts in verse 19 and goes to the end of chapter 6. And in that chunk, he says, don't worry three different times. When talking about your stuff, what you own, there's this repeated command, don't worry. Um, Now, crowd participation time, y'all been anxious before? Say amen. 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 Right? Like, yes, some of you are anxious right now because you're assuming we're going to talk about money at some point this morning, and you would be correct. (laughs) Let the anxiety build. Um, Now, let me ask you. So I think almost everybody said that they've been anxious at some point. Uh, So you're in that that pit of, I, am I having a panic attack? You know, that kind of anxiety. Where like am like, is this a panic attack right now? Or am I just nervous? Or is something really wrong? Like when you're right in the middle of the sky is falling down, something is wrong, something is happening, and, and you're freaking out. Maybe you've had the experience of a well-intentioned Christian or a spouse or a parent, somebody in community group. They come up to you and they see you're freaking out and they say, hey, man, don't worry about it. You ever had that experience? I don't know if this is going to happen or that. Hey man, don't worry about it. We got this real big problem at work and we don't know if it's going to, we don't, hey man, don't worry about it. And you're like, oh my gosh, I never knew. (laughs) That's the, that's what you do. You, You go up to the worry switch and you just stop it. Just stop worrying. Were it, were it that simple? Thank you very much for that advice. If you're the person whose big encouragement to your friend is, hey, have you thought about not worrying about it? Just keep that one to yourself, right? Just keep that one to yourself. Who, who among us wakes up in the morning and says, you know what I'd like to do today? I'd like to have a panic attack. <laughs> or looks in the mirror, brushing their teeth, and is like, you know what, Today's, today is the day that I'm going to have a morning that is filled with irrational anxiety. This is going to be great. It's not like we necessarily or, or precisely choose to be anxious. For a lot of us, especially, you don't have to out yourself now, but you have that irrational worry. You're worried about things that you know you don't need to be this worried about, or you know you're too worried about it, but then you feel guilty that you're worried about it, and you get in this weird feedback loop. I don't think we choose these things as much as, it, you know, it can just feel like it's happening to us. I didn't pick this today, and yet here we are. And I think Jesus, in this passage, is going to reveal to us some of the heart of anxiety and what that thing that hap- that's happening, what is that really? And from there, so he'll show us the heart of anxiety, he'll reveal this to us, and then he invites us into healing through... Uh, what we're going to call kingdom economics this morning. And I'm trying to make Bobby proud of me. Bobby preached a wonderful sermon last week. You notice when he preaches, he's got like pictures. He's got memorizing taglines. He's got the Monday challenge. He sits on his stool and like he's got the whole thing worked out. So I had to come up with a, a line that rhymes a little bit to help you guys remember it, but mostly to make Bobby proud of me. So here's the invitation this morning. I want you to imagine Jesus saying this to you this morning. If you want to be worry-free, learn to depend on Me. See, it rhymes. Someone over there went, "Oh, I really believe what the, I really believe that that's not just cute, but I re, I really believe that." Um, so let's start with the heart of anxiety. Uh, and a quick preface here: as a church, we recognize our world is broken. We talked about this in our, our prayer of lament. You hear it all the time. Uh, the brokenness of the world doesn't just include our souls, it in- also includes our bodies. Stuff happens in our bodies that w- is not designed to happen. So for instance, what's that have to do with anxiety? A good friend of mine, his liver is broken. Which means his liver doesn't process the stuff, the hormones that make you anxious, the way a, hormo- or a liver is supposed to. Which means he has a 9 out of 10 anxiety reaction to situations that are a 1 or a 2 out of 10. It'd be unfair, it'd be cruel to look at him and say, repent. His liver's broken. Um, He doesn't have a theological problem. He's got a organ problem, a body problem. So we thank God for doctors. We thank God for medicine. We thank God that we're not left without hope in some of those situations. So you... If you're like, I don't know, is my body broken or am am I a functional heretic? Like, you got to figure that out with you and your doctor and your community. But don't assume that everything that we're saying here applies to you if maybe you have an anxiety disorder, which we recognize those are, are real things. So that being said, beyond that, there is an anxiety that I think is common to all of us. We've experienced some degree of it or another. Earlier from the verses that were read for us, Jesus talks about people who are worried about their clothing their savings account, um, their food. And he shows us what the heart of anxiety is, what is going on underneath this preoccupation with stuff. And so in in verse 21, he says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Another way to put about or think about it, um, what a person truly values reveals who they truly are. Uh, What a person spends their money on Can reveal the priorities of their heart. And it's easy to gather here on Sunday and say, you know, bless the Lord, oh my soul, we're gonna sing, we're gonna clap, it's we love Jesus, and then, you know, somebody's bank account is a pretty clear window into what are the priorities of this person's life. What what do they really love? So the the person who's preoccupied with their retirement account kind of loves their security. We're not a church that's against retirement accounts. But if you're the person who's checking your long-term investment every afternoon, and every penny is about going back into the 401k, we, we would say that there's some kind of love for your own security happening there. Or maybe you're preoccupied with your next meal. Maybe you love your pleasure and comfort. Um, maybe the person who's preoccupied with looking attractive, having the coolest, newest outfit, being up, up to date on the latest fashions, and being desired by everybody, you know they love the crowd. Then Whatever it is, we could break down each one of these instances. The point is, oftentimes what we worry about reveals some way that we're trying to avoid danger in our life, the, or at least a perceived danger. The danger of not having enough, the danger of maybe not eating enough, and the pain that could come from that, of not being beautiful enough. In each instance, somebody is trying to protect themselves from a degree of vulnerability, perceived danger, and I think much of our worry comes from denying our own vulnerability. We try to live in such a way that, uh, I don't know, maybe you're the kind of person that thinks that safety is possible. You know, like if we order everything just right, then we can be in a spot where we know everything will truly, perfectly, for always be safe and okay. The preoccupation with these things is a rejection of our identity as creatures. I'm not saying anybody's doing this deliberately, but functionally, we're rejecting what it means to be a creature with words like limitations. You know, God is creator, and he made us a certain way with inherent limitations. So if you go even deeper underneath the heart of anxiety, it's not just a rejection of our creatureliness or our denial of being vulnerable. I think fundamentally, the heart of anxiety is a rejection of God's rule and a refusal to trust him. So the person that's, I would say, disproportionately or consistently exaggerated feelings of worry and anxiety, there's a rejection of God's rule of the universe and a refusal to trust him. And so Jesus is poking into this reality by, I think, trying to show us the lie of materialism. The, these things, and we're, we're going to talk about all kinds of different stuff here, your actual possessions in a few minutes. I don't think Jesus is saying any of this stuff is bad. I think what he's saying, particularly to us in the West today, is that it's not bad in and of itself, but boy, it's probably lying to you. So he's, he's done some exposing of the heartwork work here. You're worried because you're refusing to trust God and rejecting his rule. And now he's inviting us to understand some of, the, of his kingdom economics. He starts off pretty negatively uh, the, so he says a bunch of, this is bad, this is bad. And I think the, the first lesson he tells us is that your stuff, is a, it's simply a bad investment. He's not saying it's bad. He's saying it's a, it's a bad in investment. So verse 19, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. This is a difficult verse for me because I sp- I've spent a lot of time in the last year worrying about rust on my vehicle. And then you read rust And we are confronted, right? Jesus doesn't say necessarily that, you know, buying a vehicle that's rusty is bad or um, buying a wool sweater is bad uh, or having a house is wrong. He's just saying it's a bad investment. Don't bank your future on stuff that's falling apart and whose grand destiny is a landfill, you thought about that? With It blows my mind because I'm right on this line of having expensive tastes but cheap budget. And so what I do is like I'll go to Dillard's. You notice like Dillard's three times a year will have a 98% off sale. where And there'll be just these racks of shirts. And you'll see on the tag $172. And then scratched off and it'll be like $8. And I'll buy this shirt and be like, who's the maniac that spent $200 or whatever on this shirt? And don't they know? That the thing, and then you fast forward two or three years down the road, and that shirt is like a rag in somebody's machine shop, or it's filled with holes because it's sitting in the back of your closet. I'm not saying don't buy the shirt. I'm not saying it's bad if you spend full price on the shirt. I'm saying if you're looking at your stuff to say, oh, then I'll be lovable, oh, this will keep me safe, oh, this will answer, it's, you're going to get a terrible return on investment. Your stuff isn't bad. It's great to enjoy that sweater you bought or whatever. Enjoy it. Thank God for it. Just know it's not going to last. It's going to sit in a big pile of dirt and slowly be eaten away by worms at some point. Doesn't mean it's bad. just means it's a bad investment for the long-term health of your soul. Bad investments lead to the next warning, verses 22 and 23. Your stuff um, is a bad investment and it may blind you your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. So I, that last verse is pretty intense. Uh, it might be easier to think about good. And if the, the stuff you think is good is actually bad, how bad is the bad? You know, like, how confused are you? And if you're like, that sentence made no sense. You get the point of what I think Jesus is saying here. Your stuff may blind you. This, the bad here, if your eye is bad, that one right there, that word we could also translate as stingy. You know what a stingy person is, someone who won't let anything go, saying if, if, your stuff is, if your eyes are focused on stuff and your heart is shaped by stuff, what's going to happen is you're going to fall in love with your stuff and you won't let any of your stuff go away. And that will mean you don't see the world very clearly. Where you have opportunities to meet a need, you may see it as a threat that someone could take it away from you. If, if you're preoccupied with your stuff, you will start making bad decisions. You'll cut corners at work, you'll lie, you'll fudge, because you need to get this next thing, or keep the thing that you've already got. So your stuff's a bad investment, and it may blind you. And ultimately, the danger is, is it may enslave you. No one can serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So look at the flow that Jesus is saying. He's drilling deeper and deeper into issues of the heart. Your stuff is a bad investment. If you keep making that bad investment, it'll cloud your vision. And then what will happen? The stuff you own starts to own you. You know that experience? I see this happen all the time, where people work so hard to get something, and then once they have the thing, their whole life is about not losing the thing anymore. I worked so hard to have this money. You got this money, now what? I'm just so worried the economy's gonna collapse. You worked for 30 years to get all this money and you're gonna spend your last 30 years worried that you're gonna lose all, all the money you got? Well, why don't you go on vacation? Well, I don't know, it's awfully expensive. Flights, gas has gone up, flights have gone up, and I just, and we end up being owned by the things that we sought out to own. I can't wait to buy these sheets. Hey, your brother wants to come into town. <laughs> Can we trust him to sleep on the new sheets? <laughs> I don't know. You know what I'm saying? You were, I remember this car, my rusty car, old rusty but trusty sitting out there. I spent 10 years trying to find this car that I wanted. I got it. And one of my closest friends, when he, he's like, man, we got to hang out. I want to see it. I'd been home for like two days. It's like, awesome. This is going to be great. Shows up to my house to look at it, and we're going to go somewhere. He's like, can I drive? freaked me out man freaked me out the the lie of materialism of consumerism basically says if you had more of what you've already got then you would have whatever it is that you think you need whether that's happiness control peace it's like you got some money but boy if you just had like 20 30 percent more money I know you've got a TV, but if it was 4K, Ultra HD, our whole country system is built on making you feel like you're less than. And, and we're like that's the downfall of capitalism. I'm pro-capitalism until Jesus comes back. But let's be aware of the dangers of it, okay? It, it makes you inherently feel like what you have and who you are is less than, so that you'll go and buy the next thing. And all of us are in this system now, where if we just had a little bit more of the things we already have, And now our life centers around our stuff. So who owns who? You live your life by your 401k or your home maintenance schedule or the next vacation or the college fund. We worry we don't have enough, so we work to get more, and then we worry about losing it. We can't enjoy it because then it will be gone. If I share it with somebody, it'll be a waste. And on and on it goes, and the moths are eating our clothes, and Rust is eating our cars, and a hungry trash heap is waiting, saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. We become enslaved to our stuff. Jesus is, is pleading with us to see the heart underneath us, to see how our stuff is lying to us, that our possessions are not inherently bad, they're just inherently inadequate. They weren't made to satisfy the soul or to fundamentally keep us safe. So what's the alternative? I want you to, to try to feel some of the disruptive nature of how Jesus interacts with us. I want you to take a second and put yourself in that position of being right on the edge of panic attack, or the last time you were real worried and you felt it crawling up your neck. And imagine Jesus coming to you and he says, don't worry, which, you know, riles you up. And then this is his invitation. This is the positive side of kingdom economics. He says, look at the birds. Just don't read the rest of it yet. Right? You're freaking out. And Jesus says, hey man, look at the birds. Right? Is that not a little bit uncomfortable? A little bit awkward? What are you doing, Jesus? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? So you get this like, kind of left hook of being offended. The birds, Jesus, look at my life. And then he comes in with this other hook of kingdom economics, two principles, I would say, of kingdom economics. Um, the first one is that we live in a world of unbelievable abundance. There's a lie that most of us believe that there is, there's just not enough to go around. Um, and Jesus is inviting us to look around and see God's provision everywhere. Look at the birds in the air. Anybody ever, so here we are in spring, you ever see a squirrel run in your backyard and be like, how did you idiots survive again? <laughs> All winter long. They don't have heat. They don't, I don't even know how much they know what They're they're doing. They're, I, th- I didn't think about this until the first sermon. But so in my house, we've got this little tiny porch off. It's not, I don't know if you would really call it a porch. It's like a lean-to in front of the door. And there's this gutter that I've been at war with some robins for four or five years because they keep making a nest in the same spot. We remove it, we put things up, you know, put a little Tabasco in there or whatever, the things to try to get them away. And they keep, somehow they manage to have all they need. And you say, hey, Mr. Robin, can you show me your budget? They just... If we look around the world... And pay attention, we will be blown away by the skill and generosity with which God cares for his creation. And there is, there is a stunning amount of abundance in the world around us. The first principle of kingdom economics is that we live in a world of abundance. There's plenty to go around Our Father in heaven has more than we could possibly imagine, and he will give us everything that we need. Principle one, we live in a world of abundance. Second, which is even more powerful and harder to believe, look at this last verse, this last part here, right here. Aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? The second principle is you have a Father who loves you. Look how he cares for the things that we hold with such little regard. When was the last time you prayed for the red-breasted robin population in southern Indiana? Like when you see a dead bird, I think most of us get creeped out by it, but we're not like, oh, the tragedy. Like we, and some of you are real into flowers, I guess, but in general, it's not something we spend a lot of time worried about. It's like, oh, nice, a flower, that's nice. These are things. Flowers and birds are so incredibly common, and from our perspective, so easily disregarded and overlooked. And yet, God in heaven meticulously cares for them season by season, year by year. And Jesus is saying, how much more important are you to God than they are? If God will put this kind of attention into these things, how much more so will he put his care and attention upon you. You are so loved. You have a father who delights in caring for you and meeting your needs. Yes, we have a world of abundance. There's plenty to go around. But more than that, you have a father who is eager to care for you because of how much he loves you. If the heart of anxiety is a refusal to trust God, the invitation of kingdom economics is to learn to be worry-free by depending on Jesus by looking and believing we live in a world of abundance and then living accordingly. Trust is not an irrational response to a chaotic world where we're just kind of like plugging our nose and jumping into the darkness to see what happens. Acts of trust are a witness to the care and the goodness of a loving God. When we do trust, acts that require us to trust God, we are announcing to the world that we live in a world of abundance and more so we have a father who cares for us. So simply put, this is the invitation of freedom. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Live righteously and he will give you everything that you need. Just real quick, notice, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you some of what you need Yeah. Can someone else say that word again? Everything. Everything. What would that do to your worry if you actually believed that? Not just some of what you need, not just a little bit here or there, but everything. The essence of Jesus' invitation is this. If you want to learn to be free, learn to depend on me. Seek my kingdom. The fundamental reality of the kingdom of God is dependence on God learn to be dependent on me. And if you prioritize that above all else, you will never be in need. In the last service, I had no idea how this would go. I I said, if you want to see the truth of this, ask someone who's been a Christian 20 or 30 years. They've got to have gray hair. Ask someone with gray hair who's been following Jesus for a long time. Has God ever left you, or name the last time God has left you in perpetual, overwhelming, unassailable need. And like three people with gray hair just shouted out, never. That's hard for us to believe when we're so young and in control and have so much in front of us. But that's what, that's what makes the gray-haired crowd such a blessing to us that they can see these things. And I'll, I'll give you a secret that they've probably learned at some point. I've spent the last 15 or so years wrestling through this. This is pearls right now, okay? This is golden truth from the Lord. It's the secret to how to trust God. Maybe some of you are like, I'm trying to learn and figure it out and give me the book. I think I've got it figured out. 15 years invested in this, The Secret to Trusting God. You learn to trust God by trusting God. Thank you. What do I mean by that? Trust is never an intellectual exercise. You can read all kinds of great things about it and learn true information about it, but... We could study up on who designed these chairs and what were the materials made out of and was the person qualified or not qualified to make the chairs, but you don't really trust the person until what? You got to sit on the chair. How did Jesus teach his first disciples to trust him? He said, follow me, fellas. He didn't say, here's some things about me you should know. He said, come walk with me and watch, watch what happens. When he and Peter are you know, going through some of their stuff and he's trying to help Peter learn how to trust him in the midst of all of his worry and fear. Peter knowing Jesus could walk on water wasn't enough, right? Peter sees Jesus walking on water. To teach Peter how to trust him, Jesus says, get out of the boat, Pete. You will or you won't. Come to me. To Thomas, he doesn't say, look, Thomas, how dumb are you? I've risen from the dead. He says, Thomas, you need some help trusting me. Come and touch me. You learn to trust God by acting like you trust him, by doing deeds dependent on him. That's it. I mean, that's the only way you build trust with anything. Maybe you're in a relationship, you're like, we've got a real trust problem. The only way to build trust is by doing deeds worthy of trust and deeds that require trust. It's just, you can't just say, I'm gonna choose today to trust you. It's, no, when you say I'll be home at noon, you're home at noon. When you say, I need you to do this for me, you say, I will do this for you, and then you do it. That's the only way to build trust is by trusting and doing deeds worthy of trust. So real practically, now I get to talk about money. That was all, that was 26 minutes of introduction. (laughs) Here's what I wanted to talk to you about. Now, uh, one last preface. Our budget is in incredible shape right now. We are just so deep in the, I don't know how deep we are in the black. We are in the black. 0% of this is budget guilt. This isn't about the light bills. And if if you're someone who's like all worried about church baggage or, you know, we don't trust the pastors, when I talk about giving, you can just insert another church. I don't care what church it it goes to. Our church is, we're in good shape right now. So none of this is about our church, okay? Okay. And you can thank the members for that because they're some of the most generous people you know. This is about our own personal transformation and our own building of the kingdom of God. So some of you are completely lost when it comes to money. Don't raise your hand, right? Like, it's okay. Most of us were at some point in life. Um, very few of us were raised in a family that was like, today we will talk about finances and how to do a budget. Today we will talk about reti- building a retirement account starting at 25. Like, you know, some of you did, and call your parents and thank them for it. Maybe you've been getting regular raises for the last few years, and you're just like, where's the money going? I feel like I should have more money than this by now. Uh, We have a free resource, it's called Your Personal Finance Plan. This is free, and I think I had nothing to do with this, creating it, which is why I have no problem saying it's fantastic. Um, I mean, I really think it's good stuff. And this is, in essence, what we think how God, in general, would have you use your money. It's intensely practical, and it's free. It's at the welcome table, and it's at the How We Grow wall every week. If you're totally lost, start here. Um, If you're not only bad with money, but you're also bad at reading, and you're like, that's just too much. Not only can I not manage my funds, please don't ask me to... Like, at some point, you're going to have to do something, right? Like, we're not going to airplane the food into your mouth forever. Um, That's one option. If that's too much, then we would just say, start giving something. Start giving. Some folks have been here for years, And you don't give anything. And I will just real quickly say, you're not in trouble. No one's, we're not angry with you for that. Um, But healthy families share the load and healthy Christians give. Period. And I'm not talking about a season, you know, where something happened, medical, something happened, and you just haven't been able to give. I'm saying when the prolonged pattern of your participation in this church is only taking and never giving something is unhealthy there. Something is sideways there. And if you're like, you know what, I don't want to give money or maybe you don't have money to give. There's so much other things to give. You know you have more than money, right? Right? You've got too many shirts. I know that. You've got too many. I don't know what else you have too many of. Um, Every Sunday in the lobby, there's this thing is here on the donation wall. And you can read about why we do this. And there's opportunities to meet real concrete needs in the community. Like you can give crackers to the students at Slate Run. Like, you know, we live in a town where the elementary school doesn't have enough money to provide snacks for everybody. And there's kids that go to our schools that they don't have enough money to buy some crackers. And so what's the reality? Well, we're a church where the school system says, hey, can the Christians of the community Provide saltine crackers, and we say yes, we can, right? And there's all kinds of other options. If you if you don't want to do that, maybe you've got too many canned goods at home. We've got a little pantry that sits right on the corner of Silver and Eakin with canned goods in it, and we fill that up throughout the week, and it I mean, it's full for about six minutes. And you can get all angry, like, oh, who would take ten things of canned goods? And I look at that and like, how desperate must you be that you're like policing the corner, needing ten things of canned goods? Like, how desperate must your situation be? And so. Maybe you make it your mission every Wednesday. You're going to go and put some extra canned goods in there. Like, whatever it is, if you don't give, you're not in trouble, but you are missing out. And know the danger. It's a bad investment. It will cloud your vision and your ability to make discernment and make discerning decisions in your whole life. And ultimately, it will enslave you. You're not in trouble but you are missing out and maybe you need to stop looking at it as a money problem and start seeing that you have a trust problem. This is the heart that gives nothing and only takes is functionally rejecting God's goodness, God's reliability and God's design for life in the church. We have a trust problem we did a survey of our members a few years ago and that combined with some national survey data. um, Our best guess is our church gives about half of what we could. And there's no biblical command that says give 10%. That's just kind of like most Christians will cap their giving at 10%. There's no command that says you have to cap it at 10%. Isn't that funny? Is 10% a requirement? No, but it's not a, it's not a floor either, but that's just kind of a, if everyone in our church who called this church home gave 10%, our giving would double. And if we're in the black with an $850,000 budget, what would we do with a $1.7 million budget? Did I do that math right? Is that math right? That's somewhere around there. What would we do? I don't know. You want to go start four or five churches next year? I don't know. Should we build a hospital? I don't know. Should... What would we do? What do you do when you have way too much of anything? Well, you give it away. think we could find some... If, if you see how many cool things, amazing things we're doing with what we have now, I think with a few hundred of us could find some pretty cool things to do with all that extra money that we don't need. My, my point is, just because we're dropping a little bit of money in, that shouldn't be a reason to pat ourselves on the back, but an invitation to say, give more. Is your giving affecting the way you're living is your generosity affecting your lifestyle and if it's not again, I wouldn't say you're in trouble. I would just say again, you have a trust issue. The only way to grow in trust is to take steps that require us to trust. That's it. And so Jesus encouragement there. He's not just saying flip your trust switch on. That's some practical ways. Just start trusting, get rid of some of your stuff, give some away, start giving more. The invitation that Jesus says, how do we flip the trust switch? Again, he just says, look at the birds and look at the flowers. This is him saying, pay attention, pay attention. See God's care of the world around you. This is why we encourage you to come to church every Sunday because we forget and we get distracted. And every week we ground ourselves in this reality at communion. Like the communion is the high point of our service. This is what we're building to week in and week out. And so here's what we're remembering. This is from Romans 8. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't he also give us everything else? You see that word again? So if you're here and you're anxious, and you come on Sunday and you don't know if God's going to come through or if he's going to provide for you, we say if he would let Jesus die for you, if he would give you the blood of his own son, is he going to get stingy on rent? He will sacrifice his child for you and then just say, sorry, man, I can't help you with lunch. I don't know what you're facing, but it's, it's not more valuable. It's not more significant than the eternal only begotten son of God. And if he's willing to lay his son down for you, how much more will he richly give you all that you require? And so we come to communion to remember the source of our hope and to be inspired again to trust God. And so we remember on the night he was betrayed, not the night that his friends figured it out, not on the night that they perfectly committed their plans to him or whatever. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he thanked God, took a loaf of bread, broke it, and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. And so whenever we gather, we eat this bread and we drink this cup, To announce that Jesus has died, Jesus is risen, and he's coming again. This is the anchor of our souls. This is the motivation that we have to trust him. If he would not give us, if he would give his own son, how much will he not richly give us? All things. This is our invitation to trust. Our tradition is to come forward, uh, and there'll be stations in the back, rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us and then Christians, let's come remember our hope together. Let's pray.